The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Tonight on The Readout. This is a ridiculous application of the racketeering statute. There's probably no one that knows it better than I do. Probably some that know it as well. I was the first one to use it in white collar game. Ah, the irony. Rudy Giuliani, who put dozens of mobsters behind bars using RICO back in the day, is now indicted under a similar RICO statute, along with Donald Trump in Georgia. Indicted with them, Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who could face the same fate as Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, who went to prison for helping to carry out his boss's crimes. And with Trump now facing 91 felony counts, 91, most of his rivals for the Republican presidential nomination still can't muster the courage to condemn him. And we begin tonight on that very note, Donald Trump drawing his Fourth indictment. That is four more indictments than any prior president of the United States has ever faced. And true to form, Trump is having an absolute meltdown on dime store Twitter at Truth Social, lashing out against the justice system and even singling out witnesses. More on that soon. But can, can we just pause for a second on the karmic progression of all these cases? Just, just for a moment. The Manhattan DA indictment humbled Trump in his hometown of New York City forcing him to surrender near the same Manhattan courthouse where the Central Park Five, who Trump called to execute in a full-page ad, were tried. Trump's second indictment exposed Mar-a-Lago as the gaudy Florida hiding place for what the mansion's employees, who clearly don't respect him all that much, called his beautiful mind boxes, stashing them on the ballroom stage and behind a tacky shower curtain in a bathroom. Indictment number three zeroed in on Trump alone as the orchestrator of a plot to stay in office despite losing and then taking advantage of the violence on January 6th to try to intimidate the vice president into going along with his criminal scheme. Indictments two and three were brought by Jack Smith. During the time Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York and presiding over a police department that specialized in police brutality, especially aimed at black New Yorkers, that same Jack Smith prosecuted the cop who led the beating and torture of Haitian immigrant Abner Louima, and who faced Jack Smith in federal court as one of the defense lawyers in that case? Trump's lawyer in the E. Jean Carroll sexual abuse case, Joe Tacopina. You really cannot make this stuff up. But of all the indictments that Trump has faced, it is the indictment, number four, Monday's indictment in Georgia, that might be the most karmically poetic. The prosecutor in that case is Trump's least favorite kind of person, a black woman with power. His disdain comes across in unhinged screeds on Truth Social, to which his superfans respond by showering Fonnie Willis with the N-word. Trump and his 18 co-defendants are facing RICO charges, including Rudy Giuliani, who might be the world's most ironic RICO defendant ever given that he made a name for himself as a U.S. attorney prosecuting RICO cases against the five mob families in New York before he was mayor. His tactics helped earn Giuliani a reputation as a mob buster, along with, wait for it, 
a RICO pioneer. I do think that the work in my office and other parts of the Justice Department has changed the definition of the problem of crime in America. Because we're going to have to attack it as a business, not just as individual crime. We have followed up with civil RICO cases. There will be some point in the future in which we will really destroy the power of the mafia. This Georgia indictment is the first time Rudy is being held accountable under these statutes, along with Trump and a motley crew of alleged co-conspirators. Giuliani and Trump will be forced to face a jury in Georgia, where Rudy once made public comments falsely claiming two election workers committed ballot fraud. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they are vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, our st- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. What was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. I cannot say what specifically will uh, take place. I just know that it Now, that last part was publicist Trevin, Trevian Kuti appearing to threaten poll worker Ruby Freeman. Kuti was charged in the indictment with racketeering, conspiracy to commit solicitation of false statements and influencing witnesses. Trump and his co-defendants, some of whom have probably spent a lot of time chattering about out-of-control Atlanta crime, are expected to be booked at the Fulton County Jail, which, yes, will likely include a mugshot for Trump. Nature is healing. But in this case in particular, it is the RICO charge that is drawing a lot of attention since it was enacted under Title IX of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 and signed into law by President Richard Nixon. The Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act has been used to prosecute the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, to go after corporate scammers, and of course mobsters, again, led by then U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani. But all RICO really is is the commission by one or more people of multiple crimes in furtherance of a corrupt enterprise. The crime consists, in basic terms, of a bunch of people committing separate crimes to make an illegal plot happen. They don't have to be in the mafia. In the state of Georgia, RICO gives prosecutors a lot of flexibility to charge a group of separate individuals who worked together toward a common criminal goal. D.A. Fonnie Willis has used it against gang members, Rappers, even teachers alleged to have run a test cheating scheme. And now Trump's election theft, election theft gang. She has treated one criminal enterprise exactly the same as any other. An approach that she shared when she became Fulton County's top prosecutor back in 2021. And no matter if you are at the state capitol or the slums, you will be held accountable if you commit a crime in my community. The criminal enterprise Trump led in multiple states and that he announced on a recorded phone call in Georgia involves multiple players from his corrupted chief of staff to the kooky Kraken lady and John Eastman and the Cheeseboro guy who birthed the fake elector scheme to the fake electors themselves who were involved in the scam. And even Kanye West publicist, who you just saw a little while ago, who tried to strong arm election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. 
That is literally a group of people acting in a single conspiracy to pull off an illegal enterprise. Stealing an election, right? That's the enterprise. I mean, they're all innocent until proven guilty, of course. But there is nothing about that enterprise that is less illegal than a group of educators inflating scores on student standardized tests. In fact, it is much, much worse. And if teachers should go to jail for breaking the law, then so should election thieves, which is exactly why D.A. Fonnie Willis is forging ahead, proposing a trial date of March 4th, 2024, for her case against Trump and his associates. Willis also asked to schedule arraignments for the defendants for the week of September 5th. And joining me now is Tim O'Brien, MSNBC political analyst and senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, Georgetown University law professor and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. I'm in New York, so usually Paul is next to me. Uh, This time it's Tim because I'm here in New York. Um, I just want to go back to Giuliani for a second, since you know these characters all so well. And I want to read you what the New York Times, there was an opinion piece by one of his biographers, Andrew Kurtzman and uh, David Hawley, what they wrote about what Rudy has become in his Faustian bark. And they wrote this. Faced with the political irre- faced with the political irrelevance and collapsing client base that would accompany Mr. Trump's defeat in 2020, he seemingly made a Faustian bargain, working to undermine democracy in order to save his career. I feel like the Faustian bargain was a few years before that. But what do you make of the fact that the, the RICO guy is now the RICO defendant? Well, it's, you know, it's Shakespearean in its dimensions because Rudy was an evangelist about the rule of law uh, in, a, in a very draconian way. Um, and he used RICO, I think, to great effect, as we all know, to go after the mob. Uh, the argument being that you could never touch the, the, the people at the head of the mob families because they were very good at insulating their own actions from their minions who went out, their soldiers out on the street who did the crimes. Yeah. And, and Rudy said, well, it was very important to attach what, what lower level people did to the p- people orchestrating the schemes. Shades of Donald Trump much later. Everybody who's been pulled up in the January 6th investigation has complained that they came there because Trump asked them to come here. They right. thought they were doing what they had been told to do. And yet Trump wasn't being held accountable. The other, you know, the argument against Rico being used by Fonnie Willis to go after Trump has been that it's overreach, that, that it should only go after organized crime. But, but the statute is meant to go against organized criminal conspiracies, not necessarily just conspiracies that attack mobsters were right. targeted for. And, and, and in that context, one of Giuliani's biggest cases, in addition to the commission case targeting the mobsters, was Wall Street. Mm-hmm. He brought down Drexel Burnham. He targeted Michael Milken, who he cited as the person in the center of this financial web involving insider trading and financial fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, he himself recognized that RICO wasn't a statute that should only be used against people we traditionally call criminals. Um, Fonnie Willis, as you noted in your opening, has also adopted it, adapted it to, to target other people, including drug dealers. Um, and so I think that, that the idea that, that, that this thing that he created has now come around and snapped him up um, is both ironic 
but overdue because he sold himself out yeah. and he sold himself out to Trump. And it's a reminder how easily Trump corrupts people in his orbit, but he can only corrupt them if they're corruptible. And, and Rudy, for all of his finger wagging over the years at people of color for being mm-hmm. street criminals, yep. <laughs> uh, mobsters and, and any others for not following the rule of law has now show he's just as base and just as craven as, as any number of the people he wants prosecuted. You know, it's funny. He once said something to the effect of anyone sort of in public life long enough will become corrupt. Right. That people that he he prosecuted public officials, you know, elected officials, the the Koch administration. That's right. You know, he didn't have a problem expanding Rico beyond mobsters when he was a state attorney. Because his view was that justice applied to anyone involved in a criminal act and especially anyone who was working with other people as part of a conspiracy. And I think Fonnie Willis in her indictment was very careful to use the language from the state state statue on RICO to define why this was a RICO case. Yeah. And and let me just read you, Paul Butler, um, what uh, some of the wise guys are saying. They were the people who this has been used against them, against mobsters, are saying about mafia buster Giuliani getting indicted. Um, This is a civil rights lawyer, Ron Kuby, who will be familiar to any New Yorker who has been following um, sort of the world of of law there. And this is what he said. he said, it is just delightful. He's a lawyer um, that represented the Gambino associate, Stephen Sigmund, the sea monster Sergio. I love that the <laughs> Sigmund, the sea monster Sergio in the 90s. Quote, it is just delightful to watch the guy who expanded RICO prosecutions well beyond their original intent and did so grasping for the biggest headlines to watch him be indicted by the very law he championed. And, and Paul, I want to let you comment on that, right? The fact that Rudy Giuliani knows better because he did use RICO in an expansive way when he was a prosecutor. And he understood that all it is is a collection of people committing separate crimes toward one criminal end. And you can apply that to non-mobsters, too. He understood that. How ironic is it for you as a former prosecutor that he then walked right into a racketeering scam himself? Can something be both crazy, ironic and and just dessert (laughs) and poetic justice all at the same time? Because all of this is all of that joy. You know, if we look at this Georgia RICO statute, which gives prosecutors even more power than the federal RICO statute does, not a whole lot of Republicans in Georgia had a problem with that state's RICO law when prosecutors were using it, how those lawmakers no doubt intended it, mainly to bring charges against young black men accused of gang activity. It's only when the racketeers include uh, white privileged lawyers, and when the head gangbanger is Donald Trump, that RICO is subject to criticism from conservatives. But defense attorneys have never liked RICO precisely because it provides so much power to prosecutors, particularly to ensnare the small players in a criminal enterprise and, and subject them to, to big time. But, but Fannie Willis is, is now using that power to go after the people she thinks are the the biggest, stinkiest fish in the pond. And now for some reason, all these conservatives who are supposed to be champions of law and order, they have a problem with what Fannie Willis is doing. 
Well, and, and I feel like, Tim, that it, it, it kind of goes for Trump as well, right? I mean, Donald Trump has lived a rarefied life of criming, right? I mean, it feels like he's been committing different crimes his whole life, you know, not paying his taxes, you know, obviously what he did to E. Jean Carroll, and there are 25 some odd other women who claim something between sexual harassment and assault. Um, he's just been criming so long that there was just the sense, well, no one can touch me, right? I've bought the DA, I know it. But in this case, it does feel, to Paul's point, like Trump and his supporters are finding out what it's like to live in the real world where the rule of law also applies to you. And I think they t- that's what they relate to with him is that they also feel that they are people who should not have the law applied to them. And that's why they relate to him. But he's about to F around and find out because Fonnie Willis careth not. You're going to be booked at the jail. You're going to be treated like a regular person. Hello, mugshot. And, and I think Judge Chutkin in, in um, the January 6th case of the federal level has yes. said, you know, if you're going to flap your mouth and talk and, and in a way that might intimidate witnesses or influence jurors, I'm going to sanction you. This is a court of law and you are subject to the same processes in this court as everyone else had. You know, this idea that Donald Trump is, is has nine legal lives and that he has spent, you know, 50 of his 77 years dodging the law. There's a lot of myth around that because the reality is the last time he faced a serious federal investigation was when he and his father got investigated in the early 1970s for racial discrimination. By the Nixon administration. By the Nixon administration at their, you know, Brooklyn and Queens housing housing developments. Um, and, and that didn't end up well for them. Every other time he's been in a in a around a courtroom. It's involved him essentially using the legal, weaponizing the legal process to intimidate people and taking his grievances to the press. This is the first time in his entire life that a series of very concerted efforts by talented and dedicated prosecutors with piles and piles of damning evidence in front of them. I mean, the phone call to Brad Raffensperger is not really uh, in doubt as to what Trump was trying to do. The documents he took to Mar-a-Lago, there's not a lot of doubt about what was going on there. And his own cameras taped some of the things they did to hide those documents. And, and, And he can't take this to the media and win. Uh, he's going to have to deal with this in a courtroom, and he's never been there before. And I think he's scared. Yeah. I think he's cornered, and that's why he's lashing out on social media. Sure. Um, I think his supporters like him because he's anti-institutional in a, in a way that, that pulls him into his orbit, his working class supporters. And they see this as the institutions going after their avatar. Um, the reality, I think, is as these narratives play out in court, People are going to have to reconsider how he rolls and who he is. And he's going to have to deal with possible sentences. Yeah. And let's get to one piece of sort of new news, uh, Paul. A 43-year-old woman, this is uh, reporting from Ryan Riley from Texas, was ordered detained on Wednesday after she was arrested for allegedly threatening the federal judge who's overseeing the, uh, a criminal case against Donald Trump, Abigail uh, Joe Shry faces a charge of transmitting a threat to injure a person by interstate or comment. She allegedly threatened Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, as well as the LGBTQ community um, and federal and obviously threatening uh, the judge Chutkin using the N word, uh, calling her a slave, saying she, we want to kill you. If Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you, all that sort of thing. Uh, I won't even read any more of it. We know that Donald Trump has now created a new term rigor. In lieu, which is now being used in lieu of a racial slur after he posted that all caps on his pretend Twitter. Um, they're going racial. <laughs> they're not even hiding it. And now we have threats against the judge. 
in the other case. This yeah. is in the Jack Smith case. Yeah, reportedly, Judge Chunkin has had to massively increase her security detail after getting this case. There was this really poignant moment the day after it was announced, it was announced that Judge Chunkin would be presiding in the case of United States versus Donald Trump. One of the lawyers who appeared before her said, Judge, be careful. She said, I'm trying. Yeah. And when we look at, I want to say threats from Trump, they're not directed threats, but when he says things like, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, everybody knows who he means. Uh, that's not political speech. Uh, that's criminal. He's already been allowed to get away with so much more than any other defendant has or would be. If anybody's going to put a stop to this joy, it, it's not Judge Cannon in Florida. It's almost certainly going to be Judge Chunkin in Washington, D.C., with, again, her incredibly canny, genius move of threatening the only sanction that could possibly make Donald Trump follow the rules, which mm -hmm. is to hold that trial early yes. if he keeps messing up. And, and by the way, I will note for our audience, too, that the uh, addresses of the people who sat on that grand jury, bravely so, in Georgia, have also been grabbed and released. And so it, it is kind of like a mafia prosecution. I think that his supporters are wrong. It is like a mob prosecution, complete with the threats against the people who are potential witnesses and people who were uh, jurors uh, and who were involved in the case. Tim O'Brien, Paul Butler, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, from co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus to White House chief of staff to potential felon. Do you think Mark Meadows maybe regrets hitching his wagon to Donald Trump's tractor at this point? The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Among Donald Trump's 18 co-defendants in Georgia is his former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Once an influential member of Congress as the co-founder and chairman of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, he opted to give up his safe North Carolina seat to do the bidding of the now twice impeached, four times indicted former president. And in return, he could be looking at years in prison. Meadows faces two counts in the 41-count indictment and is accused of participating in eight overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy to overturn Georgia's election results. That includes traveling to Georgia to gain access to an election audit in progress, one that was not open to the public. 
and participating in the infamous call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Yesterday, Meadows filed a court document, filed a court document seeking to move his Fulton County election case to federal court, arguing that he was merely acting in his official capacity as Trump's chief of staff. And tonight, a federal judge has set a hearing on the motion for August 28. Joining me now is former Florida congressman and MSNBC political analyst David Jolly. Uh, and you're a lawyer, right, David? Because I got a kind of a somewhat uh, legally. OK, good. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to have leave never- use you. I never said I'm a good lawyer, Joy. There, there are better ones. <laughs> We're talking about Trump, David. <laughs> you, you just have to have a bar license to answer this question. So, so the reality is, I, I want to ask you as a legal analyst for just a moment. How likely yeah. is it that someone can make an, a successful argument that they should have their case moved to federal court based on them criming while on duty? <laughs> I, it doesn't make yeah. sense to me. Yeah, this this I would analogize it to when members of Congress use the defense of the speech and debate clause that almost anything they do as a sitting member of Congress qualifies for some type of immunity or privilege because they were a sitting member. Mark Meadows among the 18 somewhat uniquely situated among the 18 charged in Georgia because he was the chief of staff to the president of the United States. So he's essentially making the case in layman's terms that, hey, I was acting in my official capacity with the color of some government official on behalf of the president of the United States. The federal judge will have to consider the merits of that. And and to your point, the judge might say, no, look, there are clear allegations that you engaged in RICO violations and in crimes. And so it's going to sit there in in the jurisdiction in which the case was brought. The intriguing thing, though, is the reason he wants to do this, and this goes to Mark Meadows' ethos, if you will, is because he does not want to face the substantive question regarding Donald Trump, because thus far, Mark Meadows is an intriguing character. Count me at the group in the group that thinks he's cooperated with Jack Smith, that he has mm. provided information to Jack Smith. And so even in the Georgia case, I think he's trying to get himself removed, because if he is asked to testify under oath, I'm not sure which way he goes in terms of talking about his old boss. Could he plead the fifth? That's an interesting because there has been some reporting that Trump's people fear that he has flipped. Right. And so if he yeah. testifies in this case, truthfully, um, could could what he says be used to undo any arrangement he had with Jack Smith? Well, see, this is where I said I'm not a great lawyer. <laughs> Maybe I should say I'm not a trial attorney is the better yeah. better way yeah. to say it. Um, I I do believe any information in either case can certainly be used. Yes, I do believe that is the case. And so, look, in the Mark Meadows case, I having served with him, I know him of somebody that he believes his own convictions, if you will. Um, People could certainly look at his behavior and say, yes, but you supported Donald Trump, who tried to subvert the Constitution. You participated in the phone call and other activities. So how far does that conviction go? I think Mark Meadows, one, wants to stay out of federal prison himself. So he's willing to cooperate and somehow come out on on top of all this. Can you explain, you you know him, what would have motivated him to leave a safe seat in in Georgia, um, in the Congress, to join Donald Trump? Is his ideology the same as Trump's? Why do you think that he, and why would he go along with so much of what Trump did? This This is fascinating. So North Carolina was undergoing an uncertain redistricting and Republican seats were becoming more favorable. Sorry, to Democrats. North Carolina. Sorry. Mark, yes. Or sorry, North Carolina. Sorry, sorry. Mark Meadows in that 2020 cycle was facing redistricting. It was still a Trump oh. seat. But nonetheless, he saw the opportunity to become Donald Trump's fourth chief of staff. And so he took it. 
Interestingly, though, to your point, as a Freedom Caucus member, I've never quite understood why Mark Meadows, Mick Mulvaney, Ron DeSantis and others who believed in the power of the legislative branch turned around and supported an executive branch that tried to seize more power than we've ever seen in modern political history and actually seize extra constitutional behavior. And then the likes of Mulvaney and Meadows and DeSantis and others sat there and defended Donald Trump's behavior. It, there are reasons to ask about Mark Meadows' convictions when it comes to political philosophy. He seemed to be somebody who was actually very motivated to overturn the election in Georgia, right? Like he's physically there trying to do it. Does that track with what you know about him and his character? Look, it does now because we've all had the opportunity to observe him. In the early days of Mark Meadows, no, I don't think so. But I think what Donald Trump brought in was the complete revelation of win at all costs. It doesn't matter what the rules say or the Constitution says, win at all costs, get power, beat the yeah. Democrats. Mark Meadows and others believe that they're in some type of ideological war for the future of the country. And so if it means empowering Donald Trump to shred the Constitution and try to steal the 2020 election, apparently yeah. Meadows was an accomplice to that. But he does not want to be an accomplice that faces prison, which yeah. is why my fundamental theory is he has cooperated. Yeah, well, at least that means he's somewhat intelligent. All right, David Jolly, please stick around because uh, maybe you can help me figure out why so many of Trump's Republican presidential opponents are so weirdly reluctant to call him out for his repeated attacks on American democracy. That's next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. With the Republican presidential frontrunner having now racked up a whopping 91 felony counts across four separate indictments, one would think that the candidates uh, trailing far behind him in the polls would be using this information to, I don't know, actually campaign against him. But alas, in the 2024 Republican primary field, almost all of Donald Trump's opponents are still unwilling to criticize him. Instead, some are using it as an opportunity to blame the weaponization of government, take Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis. We see the legal system being weaponized against political opponents. That is un-American and unacceptable. And at the end of the day, uh, we need a better system than that. I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics. Uh, I don't think that this is something that, that's good for the country. Why are either of them here? Uh, some are flocking to Trump's defense, like Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, who is volunteering himself to write an amicus brief in support of tossing from Trump's criminal cases. Make them all go away. That'll really help. While others are doing their best to just ignore it altogether. Only Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurt seem willing to actually take on the person they're literally signing up. They have literally signed up to run against. Joining me 
Now is Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and back with me, former Congressman David Jolly. I, 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 I'm going to go to you first, David. Um, why are any of them running? <laughs> well, that's a good question. But I will tell you the reason that none of them can come out and condemn Donald Trump is they've spent two years plus defending him since January 6th. They have suggested that Donald Trump should not be indicted. So now that an indictment has been handed up, they can't turn around and say, oh, woe is me that <laughs> former president should should drop out. Only those that you mentioned are the ones that substantively heard Christie and others have said, look, Donald Trump's engaged in ill behaviors. The one that surprises me there, honestly, Joy, is Tim Scott. I mean, Tim Scott's looking to create a lane that is this combination of being an aspirational Republican and some type of loyalty to the office and the Constitution. He certainly didn't show it there. He's running to be a doormat. Like, he literally is just like, I like everyone. It's like, well, that's not well, why are you running against him? Um, let's uh, let's go to you, Tia, because the, the one person who has been uh, poquito brave just a little bit, Brian Kemp, um, he said he's still defending his state, which actually is the right thing to do. He says the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen for nearly three years. Now anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in a court of law. Elections in Georgia secure accessible Fair. Yeah. OK, Mr. Vote Suppressor, whatever. But let's move on to the response from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who literally lost her mind and said his message should have been against us, not arguing with Trump, President Trump about the election and making about his own ego. And then she said, I might be Donald Trump's vice president. Your thoughts on all of this and what is happening in Georgia? So it's so interesting. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we know she's a huge Donald Trump defender. She remains closely aligned with him. So the fact that she was not happy at the indictment to be expected from Marjorie Greene, um, her decision to go after Brian Kemp is more interesting. And it's definitely interesting that now she's bloating herself as someone who might be interested in running for Senate. Everyone knows that the rumor is that Brian Kemp will be running for Senate because he's term limited from the governor's office. There had been rumors about Marjorie Taylor Greene, whether she wanted to run for Senate. There were rumors in January about whether she was interested in being Trump's running mate. And both times she kind of demurred and was like, well, that's not what I'm thinking about. But now it's like, no, she's in, a, in, in going and blasting Governor Kemp. She's also putting herself up as someone who would be willing to be Trump's running mate and as someone who, in the absence of that, might be willing to primary Governor Kemp if he decides he wants to run for Senate. So it's to me, it's all indicative of the us versus them standpoint that a lot of Trump supporters have. So once they feel that you're not for Trump and by just stating that the election was free and fair, um, that goes against what Trump is saying. And therefore, for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, that means Brian Kemp is no longer not just that he's avoiding uh, wrestling with Trump, you know, avoiding getting in the mud with Trump. But now she's perceiving that as him taking Trump on. And for her, that's <laughs> unacceptable. You know, I, you know, George W. Bush once said, is our children learning? People kind of giggled, but it's a good question, uh, David Jolly, because in the state of Georgia, Brian Kemp, who, again, I'm not a fan. I think he's a voting. I think he's a vote suppressor. I don't like that he signed that law under a picture of a slave uh, plantation. I don't think he's a, a good, you know, guy when it comes to you know, black Georgians. However, he's been quite successful with that line saying, no, nope, no. Nope, Biden won Georgia and he survived politically. Meanwhile, the lesson every person that's similar to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who ran statewide for governor or Senate, lost. 
When is the Republican Party going to get tired of having people like Marjorie Taylor Greene put themselves forward as serious candidates for statewide office? At two, Herschel Walker, she wants to be another one of those. Yeah, not until the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene start losing. I mean, I'm but they do. They're already losing. Well, I know. But look, Marjorie Taylor Greene, look, I hear that she might run as Trump's running mate. In some ways, I think, oh, that's great. Please put on full display for the nation the entire ignorance of the Republican movement, the senselessness of it all, the lack of conviction, the willingness to just disregard policy and go for the hatred. But at the same time, you don't want her in a position of power because of the danger that she and others creates to the future of the country, particularly for marginalized communities. So, look, Brian Kemp's an intriguing one because, to your point, he has he has been a Republican on policy and ideology and offending marginalized communities, the black and brown Georgians. And that should be talked about. But he's also confronted Donald Trump in a very straightforward way and said, no, the election wasn't stolen. And he survived. But that makes him a unicorn in today's Republican Party, not the future of it. Uh, Tia Mitchell, in watching the Republican Party of Georgia, which is I thought people really understand how extreme it is. Could Marjorie Greene get the United States Senate nomination in Georgia? I guess it was be in 2026. Yeah, that this would be a 2026 race. And, you know, when you talk to the mainstream Georgia Republicans, they point to Brian Kemp's successes in 2022 running. He had a primary from the right in former Senator Purdue, a Trump uh, endorsed opponent, and Kemp won his primary easily. So they say, you know, Republicans in Georgia will go with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, I think that's a little bit rosy. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a David Perdue. David Perdue had his own kind of things that were working against him beyond Brian Kemp, the stock trading during the coronavirus pandemic. Among them, his personal wealth makes him kind of the elite that a lot of Republicans say they don't want to see in office. Marjorie Taylor Greene's story is just much different. So it would definitely be a primary for the ages, <laughs> you know, and a lot will depend on where the Republican Party yeah. goes from here. We've got three years. If it's if it's still a very Trumpy Republican Party. Yeah. You know, that could mean a, a, a big primary contest for Governor Kemp. It will be very interesting. Well, we do know who is very likely to be the Republican presidential nominee. And it is going to be Donald Trump. Oh, you know, no surprises there. Tia Mitchell, David Jolly. Thank you both very much. Still ahead. Numbers do not lie. Some Americans may not be feeling it, but compared to the rest of the world, the U.S. is going gangbusters economically in the post-COVID era. I will show you exactly how we know this and who we have to thank for it after the break. promises that have long been made to the American people to lower costs for families, especially health care costs, increase America's energy security, restore fairness to a tax code, create good paying jobs here in America. The Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal initially called my plan Bidenomics. I'm not sure they meant it in a totally complimentary way at the time. <laughs> but guess what? It's working. That was President Biden today marking the anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. And guess what? He's not wrong. In the years since the signing, uh, the inflation has gone from 8.5 percent to 3.2. Unemployment remains at nearly a 50 year low. Our economy has the lowest inflation rate and the strongest economic recovery of all the G7 nations. The prospect of a recession is diminishing due in part to strong consumer confidence. 
But you don't hear about that because Republicans will only talk about manufactured crises like the dangers of critical race theory, drag queens and the threat posed by teaching honest American history to children. Joining me now is Robert Reich, uh, Robert Reich, uh, former secretary of labor in the Clinton administration. He's a professor of public policy at the UC Berkeley and at UC Berkeley and co-founder of Inequality Media. He posted an excellent video on threads explaining this manufactured Republican hysteria. Um, and, and it's great to, to have you on, sir. Talk to me about this a little bit, because it seems to me that the more Republicans scream about drag queens and, you know, putting Prager U videos instead of real history in schools, it is an indication to me that they want to avoid talking about Bidenomics because Bidenomics is actually working. Is that how you read it? I think that's exactly right, Joy. I, they are trying to deflect attention uh, from the fact that the economy is great. It's, it's, a, it's a Goldilocks economy. I'll tell you, I've been watching or participating in economic policy for at least 30 years, and I don't recall an economy that is this good. But the American public, uh, the Republicans basically want to, what, do they want to talk about wokeism? What is that? <laughs> they want to talk about critical race theory? I mean, I don't think most of the country really cares about this stuff, but it is a deflection that at least among certain people in certain parts of this country is deflecting attention from what's really going on. Is it possible in your experience to get people to actually feel like the economy is bad? I mean, when you poll people, a lot of people say we're in a recession and that's just literally not true. It is easier to find a job for most people. It is. You know, is it because if you don't like your job, then you say that unemployment is high. If you don't like you know what I mean? That if you don't like your personal circumstances, you read the economy as worse than it is. Is that what it is? I think part that's part of it, Joy. Part of it also is that, remember, we've been through a roller coaster of the, over the last three or four years in terms of the pandemic and the economic consequences of the pandemic, uh, the economy going down, the economy going up, inflation. Uh, and I think a lot of people are still kind of uh, uncomfortable with, with regard to the future. They, they're, they're still traumatized from everything that's yeah. gone on. Uh, and on top of that, you have a Republican Party that, as we've been talking about, is trying to tell people people that things are terrible when in fact they're good. I believe that over the next six to eight months, Americans uh, who now don't think the economy is all that good are going to realize that it is. And, and what the way that the infrastructure bill sort of went in is that, you know, obviously the bill passes. It doesn't the money doesn't flow right away. But now we're in the phase where you're starting to see the projects going up. You're starting to see the shovels going in the ground. You're starting to see things happen. Do you think that the bill was timed in a way that's actually going to be helpful politically to Democrats, um, even though Republicans are running out trying to take credit for each and everything that's being built in there uh, in their districts? Yes, I think that a lot of it is going to uh, stimulate the economy exactly at the right time. Remember, Joy, that as the Federal Reserve Board has tried to raise interest rates to slow the economy, uh, a lot of this money coming into the economy has acted as a kind of cushion to prevent the economy from going into recession. Right. That's already been a great thing. Uh, and I expect that over the next six to eight months, people are going to appreciate a lot more. And remember also, there are parts of the Inflation Reduction Act that people don't even know about. For example, that Medicare can negotiate for lower drug prices. I don't even hear that anybody. And nobody's yeah. talking about it. It's a huge deal.
And, and the other thing I think that's happening is you're starting to see, you know, some positive things about climate because we, we, we see Maui burning. Like we, we can see that the earth is in crisis and that the climate is in crisis. We see what's happening in Hawaii. You just had a Montana judge sign with six teenagers, 16 teenagers um, on the state's failure to consider greenhouse gas emissions from energy and mining projects and saying it violates the state constitution because it doesn't protect Montanans right to a clean and healthful environment. So you're starting to actually see small moves forward on climate. Do you think that that is that is sort of enough to kind of move, particularly young voters who really care about this stuff? And I agree we don't hear about it enough. But what do you make of that? Well, young voters, you put your finger on it. Young voters do care passionately about this. They are going to have to live with the consequences while old fogies like me are going to be long gone. Uh, And so they are taking a much more activist. They're much more dedicated and committed to fighting climate change. And that's what we saw in Montana. It's what we're going to see all over the country. And Joe Biden is on the side of wind and solar and all sorts of ways of slowing climate change or reversing it. So I think young people are going to be very, very activated because of all of this. And so you've been in politics a long time. Rate Bidenomics on the Obamacare scale, because at first Obamacare was used as a slur against health care. And then it turned into a great thing that people actually wanted to defend. Bidenomics, rate that as terms of messaging. I think that Bidenomics six or eight months from now is going to be better than Obamacare in terms of messaging. Uh, But look at Joy, let's face it, Democrats are not terribly skillful and they (laughs) never have it. Going all the way back to, you know, in the Clinton administration, I remember, I mean, we just couldn't get the word out. People have to People have to experience what's going That's on. Right. And I think it's going to take six to eight months. You wouldn't That's think my- that they had you wouldn't think they had all of Hollywood on their side. It's like just call somebody in Hollywood and tell them how to do it. Uh, Robert Wright, thank you very much. <laughs> just call them. All right, thank you. We'll be right back. <laughs> That's tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.